Welcome to the Brick Podcast, produced here at the Brick Store Museum in Kennebunk, Maine. Bricks construct our communities and link past, present, and future. Here in Maine, bricks can be found in our town halls, our sidewalks, our schools, our cultural institutions, our courts, our homes, and our fireplaces. As cultural metaphors, bricks can describe our strength, a brick house, our suffering, oh, hit like a ton of bricks, our frustration, hitting a brick wall, our determination, brick by brick, and our way home too. Just follow the yellow brick road. As bricks weave through our community and our culture, this podcast will do the same. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. My name is Cynthia Walker. I'm the executive director here at the Brickstore Museum and your host for the Brick Podcast. You may have noticed that we skipped a month uh, of June in terms of our monthly podcasts, and I apologize if you were uh, waiting to hear that one. As you may imagine, the effects of uh, our COVID closure had us a little bit busy getting ready to reopen to the public for July 1st, which we have done. So I appreciate your patience in terms of letting us skip a month and get back to our uh, normal operating procedures here at the Brickstore Museum. So today, I thought we'd take an exploration of a variety of topics based here in the Kenny Bunks. What you'll be hearing about are a little bit about our uh, COVID uh, experience here at the Brickstore Museum and what museums across the nation are experiencing in terms of what that means for audiences and learning opportunities. Next up, I thought we'd talk a little bit about fun history of baseball, since Major League Baseball is restarting this month. The Brickstar Museum will be bringing everyone a little bit of vintage baseball coming in September, so that will be That'll be a fun one. And then we're going to skip over to um, 200 years of elections in the Kenny Bunks. Obviously, this year is a big year for political happenings. And we are premiering a online exhibition called Bread and Labor, 200 Years of Elections in the Kenny Bunks. And that portion of the podcast will be going over a little bit of the history that'll be explored online. Lastly, we'll be talking to a local woman named Diana Hutchins Abbott, who was born here in West Kennebunk in 1940. I had the real pleasure of meeting her the other day and recording an oral history with her. She's probably one of the strongest females that I've had the pleasure to meet in my career. And Diana will be telling us about her story growing up here in the Kennebunks, as well as how she was diagnosed in 1955 with polio. And we'll be going over her history and how polio has affected her life. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. And of course, if you have any ideas for us in terms of uh, subject matter, or if you'd like to be a guest on our podcast, please don't hesitate to email us at info at brickstoremuseum.org, and we will see you soon here at the museum. When everything started shutting down at the beginning of the COVID crisis in mid-March of 2020, there were several reports and articles that came out talking about the effect of the closures on museums nationwide and in fact worldwide. The frightening part of the report said that at least a third of museums nationwide, and I'll just remind you that there are over 35,000 museums in the United States, 
The report said at least a third of those museums would close permanently. There is still reporting on that subject, and that number is has remained in place. So there are still expectations that museums will not recover from the crisis. As we've seen, and as you may have noticed in the news, large museums that depend more on admission or fully are fully dependent on admission suffer much more. For the Brickstore Museum, there was a domino effect on all sides. Business sponsorship has almost ceased, which is totally understandable. Uh, any income related to in-person experiences like admission or special events, lectures and educational programs in person, museum store sales until we got it up and running on our site, and facility rental has stopped. All the while, demand for services has increased exponentially as educators and parents and um, people stuck at home used our website and then later our digital learning center to access activities and resources to supply history and art curriculum to students and anybody staying at home during the pandemic. All of that content had to be taken online and that was quite a turnaround for us and I'm really proud of the staff for doing what they did. One of the exciting things about how the pandemic has changed our operation is the museum usually welcomes one to two interns every summer to help us with various projects and they're on site and in person working at the museum and most of the time it is a student that is interested in history and looking to make a career in the museum profession and the museum sees that as a really important part of our mission, which is to invest in the future of the museum profession. For those of you who don't know me, my own story starts with an internship at the Brickstore Museum, and now I find myself in the director role. As some of you might know through our newsletter, you'll know that the Stephen Spofford Advancement Fund was started last year as a result of Steve Spofford's passing. Uh, he, too, felt that the investment in the future of the museum field was a really important one, especially for small museums. If you, too, feel spurred to forward the leadership position that the museum can take in forming the future and sustainability of both the Brickstore Museum as well as the museum field, then please get in touch with us and we'd be happy to talk to you about expanding that advancement fund. So you might be wondering what we're doing for interns this year. Well, it's very exciting that we have four interns all working remotely, which gives us kind of a broader range of field from where people can work from. So we have two graduate interns from the Cooperstown Graduate Program, Emma Sarnacki and Anna Rutenbeck. The Cooperstown Graduate Program admittedly is the one that I graduated from as well. It is a museum professional training ground, basically where you earn your master's degree in museum studies. We also have two undergraduate interns, Julia Taylor from Fordham University and Sarah Rode from the University of New Hampshire. And you'll see all four of them making quite an impact here at the Brickstore Museum this summer whenever you join us on our digital learning center or watch one of our videos, that is one of their projects that they've been working on. So I want to thank all four of them for putting in such fantastic work for us. I also want to thank the granting foundations this past spring for um, shifting so quickly to make available unrestricted operating grants. For anyone in the small nonprofit field, you'll know that operating grants are few and far between, but they're really the bread and butter of how organizations are able to operate. So that means that they are funding just everyday activities, meaning staff, and making sure the lights are on, making sure the utilities get paid for. <laughs> 
um, and really funding the power behind any nonprofit organization, which is the people that are working and volunteering there. And then lastly, throughout this entire pandemic, which was really frightening for all of us personally and professionally, I want to thank you who are using the museum as a resource. As I mentioned before, we saw a greater engagement with our online resources than we have ever, almost ever in person. And it just showed us how much of an impact that the museum makes every day. Just to give you an example, in the last month alone, we've seen over 1,500 people visit the website and the Digital Learning Center on www.brickstoremuseum.org. Just to put that in comparison, the museum typically sees in July, we typically see about 500 visitors on-site walking through our door. So that is triple the amount of people using the resources online than do actually attend the museum. So we've really used this pandemic as a, as a learning experience in many ways, not the least of which is how we provide information to our community. So if you have something that you want to work on with us, we're more than happy to start brainstorming and work with you on whatever it is that you need in terms of a project. So just feel free to get in touch with us at info at brickstoremuseum.org and we look forward to working with you. In other museum news, we are proud to announce that the museum is a recipient of a partnership grant from the Maine Arts Commission, which is an independent state agency that is supported by National Endowment for the Arts. So over the past few years, the Brickstore Museum has been strategically working towards involving more arts programming and arts exhibitions and exploration into our program offerings and general operating procedures. So this past spring, the museum was able to apply for a partnership grant with Maine Arts Commission. And this month, we've just been notified that we were accepted for that grant. And we are incredibly proud to receive this grant as it recognizes the museum's work as an arts organization. So we want to thank um, especially the Maine Arts Commission for the support, as well as our listeners and our visitors for partaking in the programming that we've been building over the past couple of years in a strategic way to make sure that we are reaching our audiences in ways that you are needing and wanting. So this is just a really proud moment for us to be able to achieve that grant this year. Several years ago, the museum started a tradition of hosting a vintage 1860s baseball game at Parsons Field every other summer. This year, in 2020, the Dirigo Baseball Club was set to return to our local field on Dane Street to play this September. Most likely, that'll still happen, so keep an eye on our website for more details. Our basic job here at the museum is to make history more accessible, and living history, like a vintage baseball game, is a really exciting way to do that. Vintage baseball clubs play with 1860s rules, not the least of which means they don't use gloves, which sounds painful to most of us. <laughs> so I wanted to dive into some baseball history this month since Major League Baseball has begun and we get to look forward to our upcoming vintage game in September. When I lived out in Cooperstown, New York, which is about 10 years ago now, people there liked to proclaim a man named Abner Doubleday was the father of baseball. According to the story, one day in 1839 in Cooperstown, Doubleday was watching or playing a game of town ball, and as he sat down to write, he wrote rules for a new game, calling it baseball, two words. 
most historians tell us this is not true. There isn't really a specific date for the beginning of baseball, two words, since it most likely evolved from earlier games like cricket and rounders in Britain. These games came to America with the colonists, and the rules changed and the game's name did as well. Names like Old Cat, Town Ball, Base, and Barn Ball were just a few of them over the years. Up until the 1840s, baseball's history is a little hazy. What we do know now is that organized baseball as a specific sport started in 1842 in New York City. A group of young men gathered to play baseball. By 1845, they formally established themselves as the New York Knickerbockers Baseball Club. As a group, they wrote a document called the Laws of Baseball. In these rules, it included that the infield would now be a diamond shape and not a square. First and third bases were set 42 paces apart. Foul lines were established. Pitchers were to throw underhand. Batters got three missed swings before being called out. And most importantly, runners were to be tagged, not thrown at with the ball. By 1857, 12 years later, 15 ball clubs had sprung up to form the National Association of Baseball Players. It made more changes to the rules. Nine men were to a side. Umpire could call the strikes. No one was allowed to catch the ball in his cap. And above all, no one was allowed to be paid. We have the Civil War to thank for baseball becoming a true American pastime. Prior to the 1850s, the game was pretty much only popular in the New York City area, while New Englanders still preferred to play town ball, which is a close relative, as I mentioned before. It was hardly played at all in southern states. Once the war started, it spread like wildfire. Scholars have asserted that only 15% of a Civil War soldier's time was taken up by combat. The other 85% of their time was filled with boredom of camp life. One of the activities that became popular at camp was baseball, as it was a portable game that you could pretty much play anywhere. Examples include Abe Lincoln watching a game from the White House lawn, northern soldiers in southern prison camps, spread the game by teaching it to their southern captors. Scholars have pointed out that the Civil War was one of the most prominent forces to spread the game of baseball throughout the country. After the war, the game was played by people from every walk of life, including new immigrants to the country in order to feel more American, and that's a quote. From then on, it was identified as America's pastime. Here's a couple of highlights of historical baseball rules. Perhaps first and foremost, I'll mention this written rule. No uncivil language, spitting, alcohol consumption, chewing of tobacco, or wagering was allowed during a baseball game. Rules also warned against hitting, kicking, or biting of any kind. As you might guess, there are quite a lot of rules that have changed since the beginning. One of our interns this summer, who's joining us from the Cooperstown Graduate Program, is creating a whole online exhibit based on a baseball player from Kenny Bunk, and she'll be placing online that entire list of rules so you can take a look for yourself. Just visit us at www.brickstormuseum.org to explore that history. For now, I'll pick a few changed rules to mention. Beginning in 1857, the game was played until one team hit 21 points. Obviously now it's a nine-inning contest. As I mentioned before, there was a written rule against players catching the ball with a glove or a hat. It had to be with their bare hands. In the beginning, there wasn't much need for hand protection since the baseball traveled much slower than it does today. 
but even as the game evolved and balls were thrown harder and faster, there was some reluctance to use any kind of protection or padding. As the game of baseball evolved further, the need for some type of padding on the hand to handle hard-hit balls became a necessity. In 1858, called strikes were introduced. 1863 forced pitchers to throw the ball with both feet planted firmly on the ground. Batters were allowed to ask for a certain type of pitch to be thrown in the 1870s, which I'm sure people would appreciate today. And the practice of calling balls came in the 1880s, in which eight balls would be called, aside from strikes. After eight balls, the batter would go to first base. After 1889, it became after four balls, just like today. The year 1885 allowed one side of the baseball bat to be flat. This was revoked in 1893. In 1891, Large padded mitts were allowed for catchers only. A rule that surprised me is that if a ball is caught after one bounce, it was still an out. Players that switched to another team had to wait 30 days before playing with the new team, and there was absolutely no paying of any player. It's almost always remained three strikes in your out, except for one season in 1887, which had four strikes, but that was quickly reversed. As I mentioned previously, Kenny Bunk has a relationship to the major leagues. You'll be able to find his entire story on our online exhibitions area at www.brickstoremuseum.org. But here's a quick summary. The town did have two gentlemen make it to the big leagues, and they happened to be from the same family. First, there was John Coombs, whose nickname was Colby Jack Coombs, because he attended Colby College after growing up here in Kennebunk. Three weeks after graduating, he pitched his first game for the Philadelphia Athletics, and it was a shutout game. In 1906, he pitched and won the longest complete game in the American League, 24 innings against Boston. He still holds the record for the longest game pitched. Colby Jack Coombs' best season was in 1910, which is still one of the best pitching seasons in Major League Baseball history. He led the American League in wins with a 31-9 record, played 45 games, and pitched 13 shutout games, which is still the single-season American League record. With his team, he won the 1910 World Series against the Chicago Cubs. He remains one of only 13 men to have won over 30 games in one season. Despite all that, he has not yet been voted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And now for the second man to enter the major leagues from Pennybunk, it's John Coombs' nephew, Bobby Coombs. Bobby was a first a hometown hero in 1925 when he struck out 26 consecutive batters in a Kennebunk High School game. This was a precursor to college ball at Duke University. He then played in the major leagues as a Philadelphia athletic under Connie Mack and finally as a New York Giant. In his major league debut in 1933, Bobby faced the legendary Yankees Murderer's Row lineup and gave Babe Ruth his 664th home run. The vintage club that will be playing here in Kennebunk in September will be wearing real wool uniforms and playing by 1860s rules. The Dirigo Baseball Club is made up of men from throughout Maine, all of whom have regular careers or are retired, and do this to preserve and promote the history of baseball. They are named the Dirigo Baseball Club after one of the same name, from Augusta, which was a real team in the 1860s. Everything we do at the museum is to inspire a greater interest in art and history, which is so important in order to understand where we are going in the future. So we look forward to bringing you a really exciting program that truly brings this history to life. 
and we hope to see you at the game. Bread and Labor, 200 Years of Elections in Kennebunk. This portion of the podcast explores presidential races as experienced by townspeople in the Kennebunks over 200 years. I may refer to certain documents in this piece, and those documents now in the collection of the Brickstore Museum can be found in our digital exhibit on brickstoremuseum.org called Bread and Labor if you'd like to continue exploring this topic. The state of Maine quickly became a major player in the game of politics as the creation of the state itself was a politicized event in the fight between free and slave states during the 19th century. Following the revolution, frontier settlers in the District of Maine campaigned for separation from Massachusetts. After the War of 1812, powerful coastal merchants joined the cause when they realized that Massachusetts was unable and unwilling to provide adequate protection. At this time, Missouri also campaigned for statehood. The balance between slave and free states was threatened by Missouri's admission as a slave state, and Congress would only allow it if Maine joined the Union as a free state. There existed a strong anti-slavery tradition in Maine, although, admittedly, slavery did exist here, and we'll be exploring that topic in future podcasts and in exhibitions. But I'll say that, although Maine had been fighting for its statehood for quite some time, when citizens learned that their state would be admitted with the pro-slavery Missouri, Mainers looked to give up their own quest for statehood. Maine congressmen opposed the Missouri Compromise in the House vote. With their protests ignored, Maine became a state with Missouri in 1820. The Compromise also outlawed slavery above the Mason-Dixon line in the United States. This preserved the balance between 11 slave and 11 free states in the Union in 1820. On April 21, 1820, Thomas Jefferson wrote of the Compromise, This momentous question like a fire bell in the night, awakened and thrilled me with terror. I considered it at once as the knell of the Union. But this is a reprieve only, not a final sentence. A geographical line coinciding with a marked principle, moral and political, once conceived and held up to the angry passions of men, will never be obliterated, and every new irritation will mark it deeper and deeper. As Maine goes, so goes the nation, is a venerable political proverb that stems from the fact that Maine once held its state elections for governor, senators, and congressmen, and other non-presidential offices in September, a full two months before all of the other states. The outcome of the Maine elections became a bellwether for how the rest of the nation would vote come November. In presidential years, Mainers would then return to the polls in November to vote for the presidential race. The reason Maine held the majority of its elections in September was due to the state's early harvest schedule and more temperate weather conditions in the early fall. Maine's September election took place on the second Monday of the month, as written in the state constitution. Maine's reputation as a bellwether began in 1840 when it voted in Edward Kent, a Whig Party candidate, as governor. Two months later, Whig Party presidential candidate William Henry Harrison won the 1840 presidential election. In 1957, Maine changed its election law. Beginning in 1960, the state would start holding all general elections on the same November election dates as the rest of the country. Let's talk about its voting record. From its inception as a state all the way through to the Great Depression in the 1930s, so about 100 years, Maine voters consistently sent Republican representatives to Congress and backed Republican presidential candidates. 
The trend came abruptly to an end in 1936 when Republican candidate Alf Landon carried only Maine and Vermont in his contest with Democrat Franklin Roosevelt. FDR's campaign manager, James Farley, quipped, As Maine goes, so goes Vermont. In the first contest after the change in voting month from September to November was 1958's Senate race, and that signaled a change. Incumbent Maine Senator Frederick Payne, who was a Republican, spent much of the campaign in Washington, knowing that registered Maine Republicans outnumbered Democrats 3-1. to one. Shockingly, his competitor, Edmund Muskie, who was a Democrat, won 60% of the vote, making him the first popularly elected Democrat to represent Maine in the Senate. Until the 1980s, Maine voted primarily Republican in all national contests. However, in the last six presidential elections, beginning in 1992, Maine has voted in favor of the Democratic nominee. Let's stop quickly to talk about voting rights in Maine. From its inception, white landowning men had the right to representation and therefore voting. Thirty years after becoming a state in 1854, the women's suffrage movement began with national leaders like Susan B. Anthony and Lucy Stone speaking in Maine throughout the 1850s. Several movements toward women's suffrage happened to try and push forward women's suffrage in Maine, but they all failed. By 1870, the 15th Amendment enfranchised all male citizens regardless of their race. Fifty years later, in the spring of 1919, the Federal Amendment enfranchising women passed, and on November 4, 1919, Maine became the third New England state to ratify the Federal Amendment. Here in Kennebunk, the museum staff has searched our collections for local evidence of the women's suffrage movement, but so far local information remains hidden. If you have any information relating to women's suffrage here in the Kennebunks, please email our collections manager at info at brickstoremuseum.org. Perhaps lesser known is the delay in voting rights for Maine's indigenous tribes in the Wabanaki Confederacy. Nationally, something called the Snyder Act of 1924 admitted Native Americans born in the U.S. to full U.S. citizenship. Prior to that act, Native Americans were not considered citizens of this country, even though their ancestors were indigenous to this land. After that, it took over 40 years for all 50 states to allow Native Americans to vote as the act left it up to states to allow tribal members their rights. Maine was one of the last states to do so, continuing to prevent Wabanaki people from voting in elections as late as the 1930s. While Maine was the first state to host representatives from each recognized tribe to the legislature as non-voting members, the first federal election Wabanaki tribal members were able to take part in was in 1955. Let's look at absentee voting. In 1864, the nation found itself in the midst of a civil war. Nearly 1.5 million soldiers were away from their homes in that year, just in time for the presidential election. That meant that nearly 20% of white men, the only gender and race that could vote in 1864, would be unable to vote in the upcoming election. That means that locally, almost 73,000 men from Maine were fighting in the civil war. A quarter of the state's male population could not vote. What was to be done? Due to the number of men away from home, 1864 was the first year absentee votes were counted. President Lincoln, a favorite with the military during his first campaign, knew that his success required votes from soldiers. The War Department either issued furloughs long enough for soldiers to return home, which is what a lot of Kennebunk men did, or sent men out into the field to collect soldiers' absentee ballots. 
we have a letter on our online exhibition from 1864 regarding the absentee voting due to military service, and you can check that out on our website. Electoral votes, which is often brought up these days, has an interesting history as well. When Maine entered the Union in 1820, no state outside of the original 13 colonies had started with more electoral votes. Maine had nine electoral votes in the 1820 election. By the mid-19th century, Maine began losing electoral votes and has had four votes since the 1964 election. Maine and Nebraska are unique in how they count their electoral votes. They are the only two states that do not use the all-or-nothing approach to awarding electoral votes. The winner of the popular vote gets two electoral votes, while one each is assigned to the winner of each of Maine's two congressional districts. This approach was established beginning with the 1972 presidential election, although it has never yet resulted in a split electoral vote. We have quite a few famous politicians from Maine. The first, of course, is President George H.W. Bush, who has a family compound here in Kennebunkport and is nicknamed Kennebunkport's president. More recently, George W. Bush also stays here in the Kennebunks for his summer holidays. Additionally, we have Edmund Muskie, who was a native of Rumford, Maine, and a graduate of Bates College. He served as governor of Maine in 1954. He went on to the U.S. Senate in 1958. He became an early leader in a fight for the clean environment and budget control in 1968. Muskie was the Democratic nominee for vice president on a ticket headed by Hubert Humphrey, but lost to Richard Nixon. In 1972, Muskie was tapped by President Jimmy Carter to become Secretary of State. Another is Margaret Chase Smith. Born in Skowhegan, Smith achieved fame as the first American woman elected to both houses of Congress. She was elected to the Senate in 1949, after nearly a decade in the House of Representatives. As McCarthyism took hold in the 1950s, Smith was the first Republican senator to speak out openly against Joseph McCarthy's anti-communist witch hunt. McCarthy fought back by removing her as a member of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations and helped to finance an unsuccessful challenger during her re-election campaign in 1954. On January 27, 1964, Smith announced her candidacy for President of the United States. Though she did not garner enough votes for the presidential nomination, she became the first woman to have her name placed on the nomination for the presidency at a major political party's convention. Returning to her Senate seat, she supported educational funding, civil rights, and Medicare. She was a strong supporter of the space program, and NASA's administrator, James Webb, once commented that the U.S. never would have placed a man on the moon if it were not for Margaret Chase Smith. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President George H.W. Bush in 1989. Another is William Cohen, who was born in Bangor and attended Bowdoin College. Much like Margaret Chase Smith, he served as a member of both houses in the Congress. During his first term, he became deeply involved in the Watergate investigation as a member of the House Judiciary Committee. Maine's current senator, Susan Collins, worked for Cohen during his tenure, and in fact, Collins was elected to succeed him in his seat. Cohen was appointed by President Bill Clinton to the position of Secretary of Defense from 1997 to 2001, and was an example of where a cabinet appointment crossed party lines. Cohen was a Republican, and Clinton was a Democrat. Secretary Cohen played a large role in directing U.S. military action in Iraq and Kosovo in the late 1990s. After leaving the Pentagon in 2001, Cohen received the Woodrow Wilson Award for Public Service from the Smithsonian in 2002. Currently, Cohen and former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright co-chaired the Genocide Prevention Task Force. Going further back, we look at Hannibal Hamlin, 
In a public service career that spanned over 50 years, Hamlin is perhaps best known for having served as the 15th Vice President of the United States. The first Republican to hold the office, Hamlin served from 1861 to 1865 during the first term of President Abraham Lincoln. A native of Paris, Maine, he was originally a Democrat in the Maine House of Representatives in 1835. In the 1840s, he served in the U.S. House of Representatives, and in 1848, he won election to the U.S. Senate. Hamlin was an active opponent of slavery. His increasingly anti-slavery views caused him to leave the Democratic Party for the newly formed Republican Party in 1856. In 1860, Hamlin was chosen as nominee for vice president, selected in part to bring geographic balance to the partnership, as Lincoln was from Illinois. For the 1864 election, Hamlin was replaced by Andrew Johnson, a Southern Democrat chosen for his appeal to pro-Union Southerners. Hamlin returned to the U.S. Senate until 1881, when he served as ambassador to Spain before retiring to Maine in the late 1880s. We go back towards the present with George Mitchell, who was born in Waterville, Maine, and attended Bowdoin College in Brunswick. Mitchell served in the U.S. Senate from 1980 to 1995 and served as Senate Majority Leader from 1989 to 1995. Since retiring, he took a leading role in negotiations for peace in Northern Ireland and the Middle East as recently as 2011. He was the main investigator in two quote-unquote Mitchell reports, one on the Arab-Israeli conflict in 2001 and one on the use of performance-enhancing drugs in baseball in 2007. Among his many other career achievements, Mitchell also served as chairman of the Walt Disney Company from 2004 to 2007. Lastly, we have a gentleman from Kennebunk, Hugh McCulloch, who was born right here. His family home still stands on Summer Street. He also attended Bowdoin College before moving to Fort Wayne, Indiana. He became president of the Bank of Indiana from 1857 to 1863. He was chosen as the first comptroller of the currency in 1863, and during his 22 months in office, 868 national banks were chartered and no failures occurred. His suggestions for major changes in banking law resulted in the National Banking Act of 1864, which remains the foundation of the national banking system today. In 1865, McCulloch was appointed the 27th Secretary of the Treasury, by President Abraham Lincoln. McCulloch was in attendance at Lincoln's deathbed after the president's assassination. He continued to serve in the presidential cabinet of Andrew Johnson until 1869. Between 1870 and 1876, McCulloch was a member of the banking firm Cook & McCulloch in England. Upon his return, he once again took his post as Secretary of the Treasury under President Chester Arthur. McCulloch was the last surviving member of the Lincoln cabinet. McCulloch's sister also lived here in Kennebunk. She also lived on Summer Street with her husband, and they had 12 children, and many of their descendants remain in the area today. The Brickstore Museum has a large collection of political memorabilia based on presidential campaigns that came through southern Maine, and you can explore items from that collection on our website on our online exhibition called Bread and Labor Elections in the Kennebunks Over 200 Years. So as I leave you, I wonder if you might think of these questions. What was the first presidential race you voted in? And think a little bit about uh, what was going on at the time, how old you were, and who you voted for. And if you want to share that with us, please email us at info at brickstormuseum.org. We always love collecting personal stories of the reasons why people make decisions that they do, because that's always really important to capture. If you want to try an at-home activity, especially for young ones in your family, pretend you are running for president. What does your campaign poster look like? What's your slogan? What's your motto? Again, feel free to share that with us as well at info at brickstormuseum.org. 
and we'll be placing all of those memories and ideas and thoughts and posters that you share with us on our Bread and Labor online exhibition. This is Cynthia Walker. I am sitting here today with Diana Hutchins Abbott on July 21st, 2020, here at the Brickstore Museum to do an oral history on Diana's life. Diana, why don't you start by telling us where and when you were born? Penny Bunk, January 31st, 1940. It was a blizzard. Um, my mother had gone downstairs to get wood in the cellar. And so her twin babies became preemies. Oh, wow. So, and there wasn't time to get her to the hospital. So I was born, and then my sister was born, but she was stillborn. Oh. So, but they didn't tell my mother at the time because they knew she would get too upset and that would affect me. Sure. So they waited. And because the doctor put up two fingers, and my dad saw him, and then he quickly took my sister, twin sister, away. Oh, wow. So my mother would know. Oh, gosh. Um, I weighed only two pounds, and I didn't have any eyebrows or any fingernails, or I was really preemie. They couldn't get me to an incubator or a hospital, so my grandmother. Oh, I always had saved my life. There was a wood stove, and they took the bassinet, and they put a covering over that and put me right by the wood stove so that it was just as hot as it could be. <laughs> Very good idea. <laughs> Isn't that a good idea? Yeah. Indeed. And my grandfather kept stoking the stove so that Diana would stay alive. I, I was ma- named after the grandmother that saved me. Oh, she was good. Mary Diana, and I'm Diana Mary. Ah, very good. And my other, my sister, twin sister, she was named after my other grandmother who had passed away young. Her name was Clara Bell, oh. so they named her after her. Wow. And so, and then that's where the story began, <laughs> and we moved from West Kennebunk, the farm that was there. It was Ed I. Littlefield Farm. That's what they called it. And I was born in that front room. We moved there. We moved down to Lower Village to a farm. And there were two apartments. There were four apartments in there in the farmhouse. And so we were in the um, upper right-hand upstairs farmhouse. And right there in Lower Village. I think it's one time it was a house and it was a bank. Now I don't know if it's real estate or not. Oh, okay. Yep. Okay. (laughs) And it was 1942. And my dad, it was Christmas Eve, and my dad was reading a story to me, and it was time for me to go to bed. And my grandmother hollered up and said to my dad, Bo, the furnace is on fire. It was a wood furnace. Oh, dear. So it just started right up through the whole house. Goodness. And I know they picked me up and we went across the street and I know as a little child just standing there looking. The one thing that I I could never figure out is why they threw the gas, the stove 
onto the roof from our apartment. Hmm. Probably because it was a... I don't understand. <laughs> never could. But anyway, there was the Western Auto here in Kennebunk. Mm-hmm. And they called my mother and father and said, if there's anything that you need for her, because all our Christmas presents... Oh, of course. Please yeah. come and get something for her. And they did. Yeah, and they got me. I remember I had an iron board and an iron, and <laughs> probably much more than I had a regular Christmas time. <laughs> Quite. So that was very wonderful of them. And then from there, we went. I don't know where we went from there directly, but my father bought land and built a house in the Wilds District. Okay. Just down the bottom of the hill from Cape Hawkes. Yes. Wow. Okay. So we built a house there, and I had I lived next door to my cousins, oh. their father, and my father were brothers. So that was very nice. And it was a wonderful little town they called the Wilds District. And I grew up there and stayed in that house until I was 18. Okay, wow. And then they built a house in um, Cape Hoppus. Wow. But it was ideal to live there and be with your friends. We had a wonderful time. Whatever the season, we did hopscotch and marbles. And we had Turbot's Creek was our beach. Uh, of course. So right. we'd take the shortcut and go across <laughs> and go to the down there at Turbot's Creek. We loved it down there. And that's where I learned to swim. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was just wonderful there. <laughs> and, you know, all of us just kind of grew up. And we had summer friends that would come that we got close to. And uh, it was just ideal. And in the meantime, then I went to Kennebunkport, the school. But when I was in eighth grade, they built the consolidated school. Okay. Right. So I went to school there. We were the first eighth grade class and the first eighth grade class to graduate from the Consolidated school. Very nice. Yes. (laughs) It's always nice to have a new school. (laughs) Yeah. And years later, I went back there and did my, they called it student teaching then. Mm -hmm. And I had my same third grade teacher, Mrs. Studley, as as my, um, she was my, monitored me. Oh, wow. In third grade. So it was wonderful having her in I would say. That sounds like a good experience. (laughs) Then when we graduated, we went to Kennebunk High School. Mm Mm-hmm. Years ago, they had Kennebunk Port High School, but not anymore. Oh. So yes. we went from the port, we went up to Kennebunk. Right. That was a big adjustment. Yes. <laughs> so I remember getting there my freshman year. We had freshman initiation and, you know, getting to know everybody. And I don't know what the Kennebunk people, the students, thought of us from Kennebunk Port. <laughs> I don't know if it was a rivalry like there was rivals between York and Wells. Oh, sure. Candy Bunk, Candy Bunk Court. <laughs> but anyway, they didn't make us feel that way. They make, made us feel welcome. Good. That's always good. My sophomore year of high school, I remember it was November, and I was one of the cheerleaders and junior cheerleader, and we um, they were going to do the 12 months of the year. So every so each cheerleader picked one. I picked December. Okay. And I can remember I had a red skirt and I cut it off, 
And my mother had a a muff, like made out of rabbit fur. Yeah. So she let me cut that. Oh, goodness. Okay. And I just stitched it on. And I'm stitching, and it's falling off. And I'm stitching, <laughs> and it's falling off. But anyway, I can remember going down through the, when they played our song, the play, um, the Christmas song, and I had borrowed somebody's majorette boots. Oh, wow. Majorettes. Yeah. And I had a red shirt, a red skirt, bunny fur around it, and I had on a Santa hat. Oh, that's so very cool. It was very nice. Yeah. I think that was a homecoming or a special oh, okay. game. That they were. Yeah. Hmm. We did something special. That's fun. Then it gets to be, after that, it gets, I didn't feel well. Oh. And it's getting to be thanks, near Thanksgiving. This was of your sophomore? Sophomore, sophomore year. Okay. Yes. This is when I'm 15. Yeah. It's 1955. Okay. Um, so I went home, and I didn't go to school the next day. I said, Mom, I don't feel good. And the next day was Thanksgiving, and I didn't feel like eating, but I remember I was on the couch. And we, yeah. We had like a little open room that my dad had built on, dining room kind of family and I didn't feel like eating and so my mother just said you probably have the flu <laughs> and she called the doctor and he says sounds like the flu the next morning I woke up and I wanted to get out of bed and I couldn't walk oh, I goodness. fell on the floor wow. so I said mom I'm on the floor and I can't walk so she called the doctor immediately and he said We'll be right there with the ambulance. So they sent the ambulance to get me. And I remember it was um, Earl Bibber. Dick oh, Bibber's sure. Father, yeah, Earl Bibber. <laughs> and uh, I can remember him coming in the house and saying, well, what have we got here, sweetheart? Let's get on this stretcher. And they put me in the ambulance. They took me to the hospital. And at that time, and I still think they do this, they give you a spinal tap. They mm -hmm. make you lay in a fetal position and they said Diana you cannot move Ooh. and they put it into your spine and they draw out the fluid okay. and from the fluid they can tell you Oh. and it was polio and then I faded I just faded right away Yes. got worse and I was I remember having this horrible horrible headache hmm. it was just like people that have migraines it was so bad and then I guess I slipped into a coma and they kept asking me to count because if I could count, no. I didn't have to go in the iron lung. They oh, had goodness. sent for one. And um, so I, I would get as far as eight. And then finally I made it to 10. And wow. that saved me. I didn't have to go in the iron lung. Wow. So, That's but then scary. as the polio virus in your system, spinal cord whatever it invades it invaded every part and it does every part of your body even though people come away from the virus it attacks every part of your body and so that I couldn't move that must I couldn't have been even, scary I, yeah it was I couldn't even lift my fingers up like this Oh. so my mom would come at noon time and my dad would come at supper time and feed me yeah. And um and each day 
though. Things, I could lift my finger, then I could lift my hand, I could lift my arm, I could lift my head every day. Something seemed to improve. Yeah. And where, where I should ask, what, you were in a hospital? Weber Hospital, okay. which is now, uh, it's a living facility for seniors oh. over there. I don't know what that's called. But it was people called it the old Weber Hospital. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. And I remember there was a little boy. I guess he had polio too. His name was Timmy. Oh. And I remember Timmy. I couldn't sit up. I couldn't see him. But if I put my hand down on bed, they'd let him run around. And he'd come in and he'd take my hand, little oh. Timmy. I thought, oh, I want to see him so bad, but I just couldn't. So time went on, and um, at that time, Sister Kinney had developed uh, a system with wet blankets. Hmm. It was a, like a washing machine, only it had heat. And they okay. would put these wool blankets in the machine, like a washing machine, and put hot the hottest anyone could stand. Yeah. And then they would take it rinse them out like you know they do like a rinse system then they would take those out and they would put them on your whole body oh okay and that was supposed to when you contract polio your muscles constrict ah and this was supposed to let the muscles oh i could see that relax yep yep relax a little bit more yeah so they would do that that was very uncomfortable but it had to be done yeah. And they would come in and in the very beginning I was like quarantine and you know the garb they have today for the that's what they had to wear. Sure. To come in. I was quarantined for two weeks. Oh. And they would have to put on the the outfit, the the long um dress. Sure. The mask, the hat, yeah, the gloves. And they'd come in and it felt like hours. And I'd ask them to turn me. It hadn't been very long, yeah. but it seemed so long to me right. about those poor nurses. <laughs> and we'd get out, take it all off, wash, throw that away, start again. Wow. So that was a heavy quarantine for two weeks. So when you were quarantined, could your family come in to yeah, see? Yeah, they you? had to put on the garbage to okay. come in. Yes, wow. they did. Oh, goodness. And then not being able to move could you feel things or that I could, was I could okay. always feel things okay especially wow. now the mosquito fight. oh <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fight. <laughs> I can feel things um and there's all different kinds of paralytic polio sure I mean some people lost their feeling mm -hmm. they couldn't feel I mean it's just so many versions right of, of how it affects people yeah. yeah so before before you contracted it um, polio obviously was a fear among a lot of it folk. Was, yeah. Were Were you aware of that being a fear, or were you just a, a kid kind of enjoying life? <laughs> kid kind of enjoying life. Yeah. And um, I kind of think I was working at the Paupas down in Cape oh. Paupas at the pier. Yeah. Which is now what is it called now? Oh gosh, I don't remember the I name know. of it. <laughs> is it P it was Pier seventy one? It it was Pier seventy seven. I don't know and if it's it still that. Yeah. I think we yeah. are. <laughs> but it was called the Porpoise when 
I went to work that summer before I contracted polio. I was wondering, we would jump off, we would work the lunch, then we'd have time in the afternoon, we'd go and we'd jump off the pier. Oh, wow. Because okay, at that yeah. time, and I'm thinking also down at Turbot's Creek, people had their sewerage go into the ocean. Right. <laughs> I know. Then a... when the tide would go out, yeah. the sewerage would go out. Right. I swam in that, and I swam down the Cape Poppers at the pier. Yeah. And I wondered if in the water, if I had contracted it from there. Yeah, sure. I don't know. Wow. So um, after the after the two week quarantine, what what happened? Then I was in the hospital, and physical therapy and occupational therapy came in, and did the exercises for me, and I could eventually I could sit up with with help, and I could raise my arms up. The only thing that was really damaged heavily was from the waist down. Mm-hmm. My legs, I couldn't move my legs at all. So now it's near, I'm almost there a month. It's near Christmas. Oh, of and course. And they, they right. come in one day and they said, Diana, we're going to send you to Hyde Home, which is now the Hyde School in Bath. Oh, okay, wow. And I said, what's, what's Hyde Home? And they said, it's a rehabilitation center. Oh. And I said, okay. That was the only time that I cried, Cynthia, because I couldn't be home on Christmas Day. Of course. I think anybody would. Yeah. Uh, Oh, I've never been away from my family on Christmas. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because I was an only child for 10 years, and then um, when my sister was born, they said she was a miracle baby. She was like my baby. (laughs) And then five years later when I was 15 and my brother was born, I oh, didn't know oh, what wow. to call him. So I have these little ones at home. Yeah. Um, so the ambulance took me to Hyde Home. And there's a picture. I have a, a video of talking to Bill Green one day at Hyde Home. Huh. I met him there. Wow. And they did a, a video of me. And I let, loaned it to the Rotary in Wells. Oh, okay. And I never got it back. Oh. I got to, <laughs> I've got to find out oh where it is. Yes. <laughs> so then you could watch that. Yeah. So then I arrive at Hyde Home, and this was um, the, from the Hyde family. I think that they had something to do with Bath Iron Works. Oh, okay. It was that a mansion. Yeah. It was a mansion. And in fact, in those days, they had a swimming pool downstairs in the basement. Whoa. They had a big lion head one into the water came out. Oh, goodness. And up on the third floor was the ballroom. <laughs> That all sounds very exciting. And it really was. It was <laughs> downstairs in the library is where we had the physical therapy room. Oh, wow. Okay. And my physical therapist was called, um, I called her Mother Stevens. She was wonderful. Oh. I lucked out, Cynthia. Very good. I got one of the good physical therapists. <laughs> she was tough, but she was loving and kind. Her name was Lois Stevens. I'm trying to think what her maiden name was, because she married one of the patients she had. Oh, wow. Yeah, his That's name was nice Arthur, Arthur Stevens. <laughs> and when I got there at the time, she was um, pregnant. Oh, wow. 
So she had, I guess we maybe considered her two favorites, Ronnie yeah. and myself. <laughs> so she told us at the end of her pregnancy, we were still there, that if she had a girl, it would be Diana. <laughs> if it was a boy, it would be Ronnie. Oh, wow. It was a boy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but anyway, she was wonderful. And um, <laughs> she just took me under her wing and taught me. I remember they had nothing here in Maine that would um, take care of, of what you needed for crutches and braces. They oh. had to come from New York. This was in 50, 55, 56. Yeah. Right. Oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you that two weeks after I contracted polio, Dr. Salt came up with a vaccine. Yeah, I was going to say 1955. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I was Aww. a little bit too late, but I was so glad for other people. Right. That's they kind. don't have to go through this. Sure. Um, so I was there for Christmas. There were a lot of teenagers there. Oh, were there? Yeah. How, how many people or people were staying there? Like there were three in our room. Oh, wow. There were four in the boys' room. There was a couple of adults. I'm trying to think how many were at that time. Um, when I went there, there was a, I was an older woman who had contracted polio. She had passed away just recently. Oh. Um, her name was Elaine. And there was another girl from um, one of Vinyl Haven. Oh, okay. Wow. And so, anyway, they thought, oh, no, we got a teenager coming into our room. Oh, oh no. <laughs> but we got along fine. And, Good. <laughs> and, uh, it, w it was great. Another person entered my life and continued on was our tutor. Okay. Her name was Hazel Lowell, and she used to teach in the Bath schools. Oh, all right. And she also, she did tutoring for everybody. The woman could do everything. I remember, and I have her basket. She would come with that basket on her arm, and she would make us cookies or, or just some little sweet she would bring us. And then she would, do, we'd have to do our studies. Sure. She loved Latin. Oh, dear. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I probably learned more Latin than I would have if I'd been back in high school. That's fair. <laughs> so I passed all my equivalency tests. For my sophomore year, wow. so I went back to school in the fall. Okay. I came home in, in either July or August. Wow. I went back to school, and I was with my class. Wow. And I graduated with my class. Very good. That's always a good ending. It was a good thing. <laughs> Everybody was kind of, because I couldn't climb the stairs, so the boys, I right. hugged a lot of boys. They would just pick me right up and carry me up the stairs. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> there was no American Disability no, Act at the time. I assume not. No, it wasn't. So you had a? Did you have a push wheelchair at that time? No, I had braces on oh, my wow. legs and okay. loft strand crutches. Those are the ones that in the arm. Yes. Um, oh, I started to tell you that they these men came from New York. They oh, would put you yeah. down on the mat. Okay. And then they would draw on this like brown wrapping paper. Right, okay. Okay, then they would go back to New York and they would make you braces. So one day I went down to the physical therapy room and I had a wheelchair at that time. And 
Mother Edith Stevens said, those are yours. And I looked over the corner and I thought, oh dear. <laughs> there were the leg braces. Oh, all right. So we strapped them on, stood me up. There were parallel bars, that's what they call the parallel. Oh, sure. Okay. And a mirror down at the end. And then we worked on that, doing one leg, one back, right. back, until I could learn to walk with the braces and the crutches. Wow. I tried the underarm crutches. I couldn't do right. that. Yeah. But the loft strand that you put your arm in, I could work with those. Wow. And we would climb the stairs, and I'd fall. She'd say, get up. Oh, dear. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> and we practiced everything. Wow. And so then it was time to leave. I left with my braces, crutches. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. And I had a long flight of stairs outside my house to get into my house. Oh. <laughs> and my dad said, do you want me to make her a ramp? And the doctor said, no. It'd be good for her to climb those stairs. Wow. So we, we did that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> now it's time to graduate. Yeah. From high school. And in between that time, April and graduating the next June, I had met somebody. And he kind of liked me and I kind of liked him. Good. So <laughs> we had a little romance going there for about five years before we married. <laughs> now I'm graduating from high school. What am I going to do? Mm. In those days, the dean of the college, or the president of the college, would come and recruit you. Oh, goodness. Okay. <laughs> okay. You didn't go find a big resume and <laughs> right. do all those things. They would recruit you. Yeah. So I could remember him. He was president of Gorham State Teachers College. And um, he said, you come. We'll take good care of you. Well, the dean of women didn't think so. Okay. <laughs> she didn't think that. It was a good fit. Hmm. She thought that I couldn't do it, that, you know, too much responsibility for the boys. And I said, well, will you let me try? And she said, yes. So she let me try, and I made it through four years of college. Same college roommate, whom has passed away, and I miss very, very much. And... Um, I made it. Yeah. I always wanted to be a pediatric nurse. Okay. Because of my, today probably they would let you, but in those days they didn't. So I thought, hmm, teaching. So I taught for 25 years in the classroom, six and a half years at the library. Oh, very well, good. Yeah. So, and I loved every minute of it. <laughs> I was never unhappy in my classroom. Wow. Loved it. Loved them. <laughs> taught first grade and Stole oh, a little you? part of everybody. <laughs> it's, it's still mine. Yes. When I see them now, I can reduce them right down to first graders. <laughs> I can imagine that. Well, uh, and where was the, you probably said it, but where did you teach first grade? I taught, first I taught second and third in Mildred L. Day School. In oh, Orlando. okay. Sure. <laughs> and then we were building a house in Moody. Mm -hmm. So there was an offering opening and a thousand dollars more Ooh. in wells, so I took that. <laughs> Very good. So you um, had a full teaching career, and then 
I got married in 1962. Okay. I graduated on a Monday, uh-huh. got married on a Saturday. <laughs> Very good. A lot of planning. Yes. <laughs> I just thought, oh my goodness, I wonder why we just didn't wait, but I guess we couldn't. <laughs> That's fair. And then, five years later, I had a baby. There you go. I yeah. can remember being, in those days, I remember my husband dropped me off so fast, I don't even know oh, if goodness. he stopped the car, <laughs> he just pushed me out. And so he was so worried about me. But I remember the little nurse, she was an older nurse, I remember her putting her foot up on the side of the bed, and she looked at me, she says, now, young lady, how do you expect you're going to take care of this baby? And I looked at her and said, you know what? I never thought of it. I said, but whatever's going to happen, it will happen, and I'll try to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's when I had my son, Darren. Wow. <laughs> and what was your husband's name? I'm sorry, I didn't ask His that. His name was Edward J. Abbott, but everybody called him Buzzy. Oh, okay. His sister named him when... She was 13 years older than he was. And uh, so I don't know if he was buzzing around or what, but she called him Buzzy. So everybody knew him as Buzzy. Fair enough. I often um, like to ask, especially mothers, what was your first reaction to bringing home your baby? How were you feeling when you got home and you got out of the hospital? Just trying to figure out what's going to be easier for me and for him. Yeah. And I found out what I did is I had a carriage, and I put him in the carriage. And then I could push him to wherever I needed to be for his bath. Then I breastfed, so at nighttime, I just picked him up. He'd he'd just go, (laughs) and I'd breastfeed him. Then I'd change his diaper, and I'd put him back in the carriage. Yeah. And it worked out fine. Sounds like it did. So um, was he your only son, only child? Yes. What is he doing now? He lives near Orono. Oh, wow. In a town called Milford. It's right near, oh. next to Old Town. Yes. <laughs> and he works for General Electric. Wow. So, yep. He's, he's, he's been there for 25 years. Good. And his wife, Jennifer, um, she is a, works for the Bar Harbor Hospital, Mount Desert oh, wow. Hospital. Very good. Yep. And she lives <laughs> there. She's in the... Um, office part of of the you know like when doctors she has to take when they do she has to transcribe like whatever they write out oh goodness good luck yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and she does very she loves that good so she's she's working there and she's doing well and I have three grandchildren oh very good yeah I have an older one Jeff he lives in Wallingsford New Hampshire mm-hmm. he has a fiance he brought her from California. Her name is Athena. She's a nice girl. Wow. Yeah. Then I have a grandson, Kyle. He's 28, and he found a teaching job in Florida. He oh, hasn't wow. gone. I don't know. He was supposed to go back the 14th, and then he came home for the summer. Yeah. So I don't know what's going to happen when he goes back. It's a private school right. in um, Tampa. Okay. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens I know. with that. <laughs> every time I think, oh, what's going to happen to... <laughs> and then I have a granddaughter. She's 27, and she lives with me. Oh, excellent. Yeah. That's nice. It is. <laughs> it's always nice to have company. Um, so speaking of family, and I didn't I didn't ask way back, um, but 
tell me a little bit more about your parents. Well, my father was a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. He was a lobsterman, construction guy. Um, like when they built the nuclear plants, he was the, what do you call the head guy? The oh, um. Foreman. Yes. He was the foreman. <laughs> All right. And he also did um, lobstering out of Cape Hoppus. Okay. And yeah. fishing. And um, he could build anything. He really could. He built he built us a nice little house. My mother was a homemaker most of her life. And um excellent cook. Ah. You know, if I good. say I, I need like a, a baby sweater for somebody, <laughs> you know, she'd stay up all night knitting a baby <laughs> sweater so I could have it the next day. Very good. Yes. <laughs> she was good like that. Then there was my sister Judy was like my baby because she was 10 years younger than I was. I took her everywhere with me. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then John, I got to enjoy him a little bit, but see, he was so young because he was born in May. Yeah. And then in November, I was gone. Right, of course. But he's around here now. Oh, good. He lives here in, on the Goose Rocks Road in Hennebunk Port, and, and uh, so I see him quite often. <laughs> That's fair enough. That's always good. Back to your parents. Um, when you were originally diagnosed with polio, what do you remember anything about their reaction or what they were? Were they scared? Or they were kind of calm, cool, and collected. Wow. Really, they took it, you know, as something that, that had happened Yeah. and that they were going to take care of it. Excellent. So they <laughs> did, yeah, they did a good job with that. What would you say is your best memory of high school? Um, everybody was everybody was so kind and and really, really good. Um, I think one of the things that pleased me the most is I should have gotten it out was the the yearbook when they do the superlatives. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I got friendliest. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> with Dr. Freeman, Bud Freeman. Good. Yep. And what else? There were three things that I got. One was friendliest. Um, I can't. Isn't that awful? Remember <laughs> that one? I thought, okay, that makes me feel good. Yeah. I was going to say, friendliest is yeah. like the compliment. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> yes. And, um, as you were uh, kind of a new family, what what are some things that stand out to you when you were raising your son? Oh, he was such a good little boy. <laughs> he really was a good boy. I can remember the day we were going to a birthday party, and I had him dressed all in white. Okay. In little white shoes, white socks, and a little white outfit. He's, and he ran out the door. And he went down the street, and the two boys down the street took him and tied him to a tree. Oh, no. So the mother came out. And she says, I'm so sorry. In his little white outfit, we didn't have time to change. Yeah. I had to go to the birthday party with like that. Oh, dear. Let's see. He loved sports, and his father did, too. So we, we attended. He played basketball, football, and baseball. Wow. That's course, a full schedule. Yes, it was. <laughs> I would teach school all day, and you never ate before the game. We didn't right. do that. So I have to, I'd, I'd fix a meal, but I'd put it aside until they, they got home. 
And um, I can remember going to all the games and being very excited <laughs> watching him play. He was, he was a good little player. I wrote down at the very top, because I was interested when you said you had a twin sister. Um, when did you realize you had had a twin? Did your parents, I mean, your parents obviously told you at some point. Yeah. You know what? Maybe I, I don't know if I was like nine or ten. Maybe maybe when I was old enough to understand. Understand it. Yeah. yeah. Did it did it make it you feel any different or it was just a No. No. <laughs> but you wonder I thought wonder what she would be like. Yeah. Should she look like me or would she like this or like that? What would she be like? Right. Yeah. And my wishes are that when I'm gone. I want to be buried over there in Kenny Bunkport, next next to her. Oh, very good. Because my husband said to me, <laughs> I said, do you mind if I'm not buried next to you? He said, no, I don't mind. Oh. Of course not. <laughs> Bury wherever you want to, my darling. <laughs> I said, okay. And I don't know why, I just felt feel like I want to be over there next to her. I like that. Um, when did you decide to retire from your work when it was was in 1988 okay I didn't want to but my body was telling me that and the doctor was telling me that's fair that I uh, I was just you just do you wear out I'm going through a process now called post polio syndrome oh okay all right and your body just you know at that time when he told me I you know, you're going to have to have a wheelchair. You're going to have to have a van. Hmm. I said, I don't want a van. He <laughs> says, well, paint it pink with polka dots. He says, but you've got to have a van. <laughs> I said, okay. And um, I'm just, I get to about noontime, and I knew that I just could very ba- barely finished the afternoon of teaching. Hmm. Wow. And my body was telling me, can't yeah. do it anymore. I could have taught for a hundred years. That's interesting. So all that time up until you retired, you were using crutches, or yes, okay. I was using crutches, and I had lost when I was in college. I worked real hard, and I took my right brace off with my roommate and I, and I would practice without it on the stairs. Oh wow! Okay. So when I when I would go into children's at the very beginning, we'd have to go into children's hospital in Boston, at least. Um, every two weeks. Wow. Then it got to be once a month. Then it got to three three months. So on my when I was in college, one of the visits, um, I said I can walk without my right brace. They said no, you can't. I oh. said yes, I can. <laughs> okay. He says let me go get some other doctors. <laughs> you show us. What I did with my right leg, instead of, I couldn't pick it up or bend it, but I it was locked. And I would pick it up with my hip and then swing it around. And he said, hey, if you can do that and you feel safe, go for it. So that was like a million dollars. No kidding. <laughs> I just have to put two braces on in the morning, just one. <laughs> yeah. And until I got into the wheelchair, um, and that's what I had, the brace. And yeah, it was in like in oh. the 80s when it started, late 80s. Yeah. So... Um and this is something that I didn't know. Uh, effects can go on throughout 
your life, obviously. Yes. I would assume you'd have to go for um, pretty regular checkups to make sure those things are advancing right. not very fast. And I and you know, and some and some people don't even like therapists. They got just a paragraph of polio when they were like right. They, they, they didn't know. Yeah. You know, in the very beginning, I take off that leg brace and I get down on the floor and I scrub the floors and I'd vacuum and I clean everything on the bottom. Goodness. Then I get myself up on the bed, put my brace on and get things done on the top. And one day I couldn't get up on the bed. I put pillows, I did this, I did that. I could not get up on the bed. That's how the degrees it will it comes to you. Yeah. Pretty now, drastically. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's hard for me to Mary that came today, she drives me most everywhere oh, wonderful. for something. I can transfer from my seat into the driver's seat, but to get back from the driver's seat into this seat, it's very difficult. A lot of adaptation, for sure. So um, what are your favorite things to do nowadays? Oh, I miss going to the playhouse this summer. Quite. <laughs> oh, I agree. <laughs> okay. I loved that. I enjoyed doing that. Um, let's see, they have concerts in the harbor. Mm-hmm. Okay, down to Wells Harbor. Right. I like doing that. Brenda and I went last weekend. And we had dinner at Hobbs's. Oh, very um, good. Yep. yep. And then we went <laughs> to the concert. I enjoyed I like to read. Yep. Um, I do needlework. I can do um, cross, not cross-stitch. What do I want? Needlepoint. Wow, yeah. I enjoyed that. But I have projects started and... <laughs> The day isn't long enough. For me. No, I agree. Last question for me, and I should have asked this before. Are you are you still in Moody? Yes. Okay. In the same house? Or same house. Different? Wow. Since 1966. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Must be a lot of memories in there. <laughs> oh, on the street, there's 10 houses, five yeah. on each side. Okay. There were 10 kids when my son was little, and it was just, he called it dumb. Club Med. That's what he said. It was Ooh. like Mom. I said. He said, I didn't have a good childhood, and I looked at him. He says, It was great, oh. Mom. It was like Club Med. Oh my goodness. Yep. <laughs> it's a good review. Yes. <laughs> and I remember each time I go to Florida and I come back, first time my college roommate and I would fly down to Florida, and we would visit my my family down there, and I would come back, and he go. I have to tell you something. My husband would say this. He would pick us up at Logan Airport. Um, her name was Cynthia, too, but we always called her Toots. <laughs> you probably know her brother, Conrad. Oh, yes, sure. Of okay. course. <laughs> yes. But anyway, um, I said, what, what? He said, you know, I told him he couldn't have a three-wheeler. I said, you were very adamant about that. I said, you're not having any three-wheeler. <laughs> He says, well, I bought him one. I said, you did? He said, yeah. <laughs> oh, I said, I see. Oh, no. I know. <laughs> then they go, went to pick it up. Darren looked at his father. He says, Dad, are you doing drugs? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So his father thought that was funny. Yes. <laughs> the, then the next year we went to Florida, we came back. I said, all right, what'd you do now? <laughs> I bought him a truck. 
Oh, goodness. Wow. So, I he know. was lucky during those yes. travels. <laughs> I know. I thought, what's going to be next? Well, Diana, thank you very much for taking the time to okay. um, tell me about your life. And of course, as I said before, it's always so strange um, to talk about somebody's life because, of course, you could just keep talking forever. Right. Um, but as an abridged version, I really appreciate that you shared, took the time and shared with us. So oh, I'll be thank glad you very to. much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Brick, brought to you by the museum's proud business partners. Questions, comments, and topic suggestions can be emailed to info at brickstoremuseum.org. Please tune in to next month's show to dive into more Kennebunk history, art, and culture. And to learn more about what the museum does year-round, please visit our website at www.brickstoremuseum.org.